Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep the special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle Podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Cindy. Well, hi everybody, Cindy, anorexic, bulimic, and grateful member of this fellowship. I'm kind of in shock that I'm here tonight leading Light a Candle. This was a bucket list item for me and something that felt very insurmountably out of reach. Um, I even lit a candle in honor of this opportunity right now, although this is the closest I'm going to get to lighting a candle because some of my earliest micro traumas in the kitchen involved fire and um, lighting things on fire. And I would say that my eating disorder is literally an amalgam of micro and macro traumas and this semblance of feeling like something was wrong with me at my core and that I needed to be fixed. And just outsourcing my worth and making everyone and everything else my higher power. And all of that was a recipe for developing a very lethal and life-altering eating disorder that has both almost taken me out and I would say has saved my life. So what it was like, I am the daughter of a borderline narcissist who was always picking and jabbing at her body. And this might sound very crude to say, but my mom, it was almost like she was full of helium and she was a very rageful, mean, person. And as a kid, I always had this sort of kind of image that I was literally some pushpin was going to pop her and she would sputter away and go away because she was not a nice person. And I also looked to her as if I let my guard down, if I let my body go through puberty, I'm going to look like that. I'm going to wake up one day and all of a sudden morph into some sort of werewolf and hate myself and hate my body and hate every fiber of existence. And that's the kind of energy that my mother walked around the world with. And again, she was always on diets and she had an issue with her thyroid. And I didn't know that that was something that was unique to her. I thought it was hereditary. And that if I wasn't hypervigilant, I would look like and sort of embrace and become her. And that was the antithesis of what I wanted to be and who I was. I was very sensitive. I still am very sensitive. And I remember as a kid just wanting reassurance, wanting love, and yet I just was met with a lot of criticism you know, what you're doing isn't enough, you're not smart enough. I, I had this older brother 
who was the golden child and everything he did was literally like a gold star. He could do no wrong. This kid, my brother could basically get away with murder. Hopefully he's not listening to this podcast right now. Um, but he, he just literally walked on air. And with me, I think because I was so sensitive and I didn't feel that love and that support from my family of origin, I, I felt broken from day one and I needed something outside me to fix me. Um, I was a late bloomer. I learned how to speak. I had my own language that no one understood. I understood everybody very impeccably, but they couldn't understand my weird jargon that I was speaking because I couldn't properly enunciate words. And my father as well had this very kind of passive aggressive way of dealing with my narcissist mom. And he would just retreat into his chamber of instruments and disappear and listen to music for hours. But then when he got riled up, he would turn into the Hulk. And it was almost like a Jerry Springer show in our living room. And it was terrifying. And my brother would feed off of that. And there was just all this like chaos and drama. And my childhood did not feel safe. And again, I was a slow reader. I was a slow speaker. I remember being taken out of my mainstream classroom and being put into resource and basically being told that I was two or three years behind where I needed to be academically. And I really internalized that. And, you know, when you grow up in a household where there's a lot of victim energy, it's almost like you wear that like a cloak and you take that into the world. So I was definitely a target of ridicule and mean-spirited bullying at school, not even from my, just from my peers, but also from teachers. So I needed something to make me feel special and to help me feel embodied and worthy of being here on this planet. And because of the pain, I disassociated and I found some semblance of just release and belonging in the imagination and in make-believe. And I was really good at it. I was so good at it to the point where I landed a national touring production as a kid. And it was a dream come true because I got to escape the house. I got to travel on the road and do eight shows a week and basically perform in front of thousands of people night after night. And the whole premise of the show I was in involved me getting adopted and rescued by this person that didn't know how to love. And yet, as these characters, we loved each other. And so I internalized that and I played that role like my life depended on it. But it stipulated in the contract that in order to stay in the show, you had to stay under a certain height and weight. And if you got over five feet, or if you got over 82 pounds, that was the end of the road and you were sent packing home. So I literally got into this habit of every night before I went to bed, it was almost like a ritual 
that I would repeat all these numbers to myself. And I thought that if I said this over and over again, if I went to sleep and woke up the next day, I would still be the same height and the same weight so that I wouldn't have to be outed from this really dream experience that I was having. But I remember too, when I was doing that show, there were a lot of sequences where I was being lifted off the ground and I was so afraid that this actor was gonna drop me and that I would be too heavy. Because again, some of my earliest memories with my mom, when I tried to get her just to comfort or hold me, she would push me away and be like, you're too heavy. You're going to hurt my back. And so I thought I was this big blob, even though I was a small kid, but it didn't matter how big or small. It's just the fact that that's how I felt. And that was the beginning of my body dysmorphia. And so... Anyway, I eventually did get too big to be in the show. And the irony was I grew too tall, but I still weighed less than the other girl who was still allowed to be in the show because she wasn't too tall. And I like literally clung to that like a badge of honor. And I remember coming home and all the crazy shenanigans still ensued. And, you know, I just kind of always was at war with my body. I remember being in seventh grade and, you know, bending over in a locker room and having some random medical person tell me that I had scoliosis. You know, it was all, I was automatically one day just given that label. And next thing I knew, I had to wear this big pink like mummy brace. And that summer when I went to camp, I it took like literally five minutes to put on this damn thing. And by the time I laid down where I could go to sleep in my cabin, I couldn't even get up to turn off the lights. And everyone in the cabin hated me because it took me so long to get ready for bed. But again, just this sense of, you know, something is not right with my body. And another weird situation I had too is I remember going shopping for clothes and everything that I ever tried on, I was told by my parents, especially my mother, that it was very skimpy and it was up my butt and it wasn't flattering. So I got accustomed to buying clothes that were several sizes too big because I thought that that's how clothes are supposed to fit. And when I was in college and I remember going out with some friends and we just were shopping, I remember trying something on and I was like, oh my goodness, this is way too small. And they're like, no, Cindy, that's the way it's supposed to fit. And I remember how shocked I felt like, seriously, this, so it was almost like I had a very warped perception of what was real, what was not. And there was just so much baggage in my family. So all I wanted to do was get away. And I think I also would have diagnosed myself with Peter Pan syndrome, 
because on some level, I felt that I needed that motherly validation. I needed to stay small. That was what would fill me and make me feel okay. And again, as my body got bigger, I felt like the show was taken away from me. I was too big for my mom. You know, my parents, my dad was a CPA to the point where if I went to a gumball machine, I had to get an itemized receipt from the gumball machine because I needed to account for my 25 cents expenditure. So even just the fact of like, I, you, we need to get bigger clothes because you're getting bigger, like that felt like a burden. Um, I also remember around age eight or nine, the fact that I somehow, and I think a, a young kid tends to do this, like they think that if you eat fat, you will become fat. So I remember at that age kind of taking fat out of my diet because I didn't want to get fat. It was kind of like a mathematical equation. And there was also this restaurant where we would go to, and this kind of was coupled with doing that show where you would order food if you were um, under 12. And after you ate the meal, they would then have you go and weigh yourself and the server would tell everyone on a loudspeaker what you weighed. And that's how much your meal cost. And I just remember my family making a whole thing like, oh my God, you're costing us more money. I mean, seriously, to make a kid be weighed after they just ate this meal. And I remember telling my parents at this time, I never want to go back to that freaking restaurant again. Or can we weigh me before the meal? Because if we weigh me before the meal, it will cost you less money, father. So something kind of shifted for me when I got back from doing that show. And it was almost like I didn't have all these learning differences that I thought I had as a kid. It was more that I had severe anxiety and it was the theater and it was having a mentor and like a maternal figure, you know, from school who really saw something in me that like made me feel like I was competent. So I literally drove myself into the ground with academia and that became my higher power. And I had to excel in that world. And basically, I remember I didn't even get my period until I was about 17. And it was kind of a comical scene because again, I was at this camp wearing that big pink mummy brace because of my scoliosis. And I woke up and there was blood all over the sheets and I was mortified. You know, and this is stuff that people usually deal with when they're 12 or 13. To be almost a senior in high school and be dealing with this was pretty humbling. And I remember my cabin mates literally getting up and going outside and they were screaming like a Greek chorus and skipping around the cabin saying the womanhood fairy had arrived. And I literally wanted to die in that moment. But I just remember feeling like my body had betrayed me. 
And I felt like, again, the, the blood, the getting bigger, it just, it, it didn't feel, I didn't feel integrated. I felt like I was 40 million years old. And at the same time, I felt like I was stuck at age 12. And my whole journey has been trying to integrate those parts of me so that I feel like a 360 whole person. So basically, I went away to college and um, college was back East. It was a great getting away. It was a big name, prestigious school, but even that didn't feel like it was enough. And I actually had the opportunity to take a leap from school and do this amazing creative project where I was on location and was filming for um, about three or four months. And I spent every waking moment, you know, here I was, this was a dream that was coming to fruition. And I was like in my trailer doing sit-ups and scrutinizing every little thing I ate and I couldn't be present. I couldn't literally enjoy the experience. And when I came back to school, I just was starting to have a breakdown. And I remember telling my parents, I need a break. I have literally been on this, you know, hamster wheel, you know, since day one. And at that point, it wasn't even them. It was me. I had internalized that. I had become my own like slave master and I needed to have some sort of change in scenery and, and a different experience. And I remember at the time, my family basically threatened to excommunicate me or cut me off completely if I took time off of school, even though every fiber of my being was like, I can't be here. And I was moving back into the dorm room and my mom was yelling and screaming about how much stuff I packed and how am I gonna cram all this stuff into this tiny little cubicle that I was sharing with three people. And I remember just feeling super nauseous and something I had eaten didn't agree with me. And all of a sudden I was literally crouched over the toilet and I was having that wonderful, really volatile moment for um, several hours straight. And again, just screaming in the background, yelling like I had done this on purpose, but it was almost like I had found the fountain of salvation here. I had activated a gag reflex from heat stroke, food poisoning, terror, and screaming in the background. And all of a sudden, I felt like I had this superpower, like I could throw up. I didn't have to restrict. I didn't have to scrutinize every little thing that went into my body. I could just throw it up. And it was the craziest thing because I, as a kid, was like, I never thought in a million years I would be one of those people that would make themselves throw up. Just the thought of being on a windy, curvy road and getting nauseous, that was the last thing I ever wanted to endure. 
But yet here I was, you know, and the lengths I would go to, to stay thin and to feel okay in my own vessel. So basically that's how I found purging. And the rest of my journey was a series of peaks and valleys, you know, yays and boos of me basically being on the verge of something that was a breakthrough and then on into the dust of something that was like a breakdown. And I came to these rooms back in 2006. I had finally agreed to go into a treatment program based on the urging of some friends. And I hated the treatment program. It literally felt like my upbringing all over again. And I also had some medically documented food allergies. And at this program, they didn't give a damn about anything medical or documented. They just were like, you're going to drink this milk, you know, and if you don't, there are going to be consequences. Thank you. So I remember feeling like the treatment program put me into an even deeper hole and caused even more trauma. But what I did get out of the program is we were in the middle of Wickenburg, Arizona, and we were going to all these AA meetings and CODA meetings and SLA meetings. And I got introduced to 12 steps and not the 12 time steps I had done as a kid, but the actual full-on integral 12 steps. And it felt right. It literally felt like this was sort of the rubric to healing and to embodiment and to being able to look at the things that I didn't want to admit out loud, that I didn't want to talk about so that I could heal them and then like show up and be here and be fully present and let you, let all of you like actually see me. And so that was the one amazing takeaway I got from that treatment program. And I remember coming to light a candle and sitting in the back and feeling like I was surrounded by, you know, all these paragons of recovery and thinking. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is too. Capital. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was a very, I, I was kind of in awe of this room and I just was like one day, I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I want what they have. And I want to feel some semblance of neutrality around food, even if it meant that I had to move through, you know, another decade of struggle. So I've been coming to these rooms again since 2006, and it has been a wild ride. And I want to share very briefly what that entailed and what it took for me to have the epiphany and for me to have the breakthroughs and to have a life that is esteemable and that I am so grateful for every single day. It got to the point where my eating disorder had me 
spending tens of thousands of dollars. I paid people to deliver food to my house in the middle of the night that I would binge and purge with. But because I wasn't the one getting the food, I felt this sense of detachment and, you know, I'm not fully engaging. I'm just the middle person here. And, you know, I felt like I was leading a double life. By day, I was going out into the world and doing my career and it got big and better and abundant. And then I would use all that money and all that success and use it to fuel my ism. And um, around 2011, I got, um, I went out to dinner with a friend and we both got E. coli food poisoning. And my friend had never had any body or food issues to speak of, but she ended up in the ICU and they had to take out her gallbladder. Whereas me, I was in the hospital and I couldn't even keep fluids down for a few weeks, but my weight plummeted to the lowest it had ever been as an adult. And I remember when they told me that, okay, you can start drinking water now, you can start ingesting food. I was like, hell no, because here I was trying to get healthy. And then just this one innocuous meal gave me E. coli. And while I didn't lose my gallbladder, I felt so frightened and so ashamed. Like, why was it her? Why was it not me? And just this terror of refeeding my body. And I met this I would, I call him the kimchi evangelist. Um, he was at all the local farmers markets and he would do work on my body and find blocks and talk to me about chakras and all this other esoteric stuff. But I was so terrified and so needing to cling on to something that he put me on this regimen of eating these smelly, like fermented vegetables. And whenever I traveled anywhere, whenever I went out to eat, I became again with this ritual, like I used to as a kid was saying those things before I went to bed, I was superstitious. And I'm like, I have to eat this food. And if I don't eat this food, I'm going to die of eco-white food poisoning. And it was so psychosomatic because whenever I even ate anything that I used to be able to digest, I had an intolerance and my body would blow up and get really stabbing pains and heartburn and it was excruciating. And slowly but surely I let this doctor start to do work on my body. And it got to the point where I was so desperate to be empty, to not have cramps and stabbing and be able to eat that I let this doctor do the most violating, horrific things to my body for four years. And I was in such denial about it because my eating disorder was completely running the show. And I would go to any lengths, like they say in the big book, I would go to any lengths to feel okay. And so that was one horrible demoralizing thing that my eating disorder took me to. 
I also, on my way to go see a client to celebrate a major win in her life was in a very severe car accident. And that took me down and I wasn't able to binge and purge for probably about a month. And I had a fractured sternum and I had burns all over my body. I, I called it the Batman insignia because literally the steering wheel like left almost like a tattoo in my arm when it deployed. Um, but it took literally, like I was so close to my body collapsing and yet the moment the pain disappeared and I even still tried to throw up and eat food while I had a fractured sternum. You know, I was not willing to give this up. Like I had to dig such a deep bottom that there was no bottom left to be dug. And I even remember going out to dinner with a grandparent and biting into a nut that slipped off the fork. And then I chomped down into the fork and I cut or I, a whole tooth literally just came out of my mouth. I'd never even had a cavity. And here I was losing teeth and um, I had to get eight veneers. And so it was like from nothing to everything. But that wasn't enough to stop me from purging or starving or doing these crazy demoralizing things to try to feel safe and okay in my vessel. So basically what ended up happening is, you know, I got to the point where I had literally lost everything and I was emotionally, mentally, physically, and financially bankrupt. And I just dove myself into these programs. And I had an incredible sponsor and another fellowship that was helping me deal with the wreckage of everything that had gone asunder. And the night before I had seen him, he said to me, because I had basically another blackout because my potassium was so low from throwing up. I almost, I, I thought someone was gonna find me dead in my apartment. And right around that time, my father had died. And I remember looking at him and thinking that could have very well been me. You know, how did I get spared? And I remember my father even saying to me, I hope that you get to outlive me because at this point it's not looking so hot. And ten minutes left. Say that again. That's ten minutes left. Thank you. So I remember sitting down, and for the first time, years and years of people have told me that the road that I was headed on was not going to be an auspicious ending. And yet with every fiber of my being, I wanted to be the exception. I wanted to have it, have everything and still cling to the safety blanket of an eating disorder. And something hit me that day where I sat down with this man, the sponsor, and I was able to just share with him the thousands of dollars that I was spending a year on food to binge and purge with. The fact that I had stolen food because I was so ashamed that I didn't want anyone to know I was buying it. 
all of the things that I was seriously, completely just ashamed of. And I just got it out of me. I was so brutally honest. I even talked about the kimchi evangelist (laughs) and something in me just shifted. And that was the first night in over a decade for a sustained period that that need to violently act out against my vessel was lifted. And I have been able to abstain and not do that ritual and that disownership and that outsourcing my eating disorder and outsourcing the need to be fixed for over three and a half years. And what's incredible is I don't feel like I need to escape my body anymore. In fact, I want to be here and I have so much to give and I want to be a service. And my whole career that has literally exploded is about igniting a passion in others and being a service. And I feel like this program and working the steps and having sponsors and finding an abstinence that isn't as uncompromising and judgmental and perfectionistic as my eating disorder. That abstinence was setting me up to never get a day count. So I found an abstinence that allows me to be imperfect yet allows me to have a life beyond my wildest dreams and not have the obsession and all the controlling and contorting take over so much real estate in my brain. So that I am so grateful for. And I'm so grateful as well that my body that I had betrayed, I thought my body had betrayed me but my body literally hung in there. You know, there's no reason, like why why did I survive this? It's a miracle that I'm alive. And I'd love to share with you something that I wrote about my body, basically an apology letter. Dear baby girl, sweet child, I am so sad that I have starved and battered and violated you and made you out to be someone unworthy of love, respect, care, affection, and protection. You are a precious, beautiful, resilient, badass vessel and have stuck with me all this time, even as I repeatedly betrayed you. I promise to hold space for you, honor you, and be with you. I seek to know you, understand you, and accept you for who you are. You are perfect in every way because you are you. You are not a mistake. You are just as wonderful and as beautiful as higher power always has intended for you to be. So that was my apology that I wrote a few years ago to my body, but 
Uh, my program now is about rigorous honesty, showing up imperfectly and having that be more than enough. My program is about being willing to be uncomfortable and to talk about it and not hold all this stuff in secrecy that I think will cause people to be shocked and run for the hills. My program is about showing up and, you know, sometimes even if I can't show up for me, I know I can show up for you and I can show up for higher power. And that's all it takes, just a willingness. And I tell people out there who are struggling that if I, after literally 15 years of coming back to this program and not leaving and just putting one foot in front of the other and acting as if, if I could somehow have a breakthrough and do, you know, something could be done for me, what I couldn't do for myself, then there is a higher power and there is a solution. And I know I didn't hang the moon in the sky. I can't stop the tides from rolling at me if I scream and yell at them. I see my higher power in hindsight and retrospect. And I look back and I'm like, holy wow, the fact that I'm alive and the fact that my life is so full imperfectly and so dynamic. And I have literally made it through a B-rated horror flick that rivals Freddy Krueger and anything else you could imagine. Like, and I can laugh about it now, but you know, I definitely have a great book to write here, but overall there is a higher power because there is something bigger and greater than my eating disorder and this need to escape and not feel and not be human. Just this need to check out from this unbearable weightiness of being human. And being human is a gift. And I see my eating disorder as a gift. And I have immense gratitude. I do gratitude lists every day. I check in with my sponsor. I read the big book. I am a service. I secretary several meetings. I sponsor. And I just share what I've been through. And I help other people tap into what it is they're moving through and not be so ashamed about it. So this experience has been a miracle and I think it's been the only way for me that's ever worked. And I am indebted to these rooms and I'm so grateful to share my story and be here today. So thank you immensely for letting me be a service. It looks like we have time for one question. So if someone would like to ask a question of Cindy, please raise your hand by clicking reactions and then raise hand. Anybody would like to ask a question? Okay, uh, Fee, please go ahead. Hi, Cindy, thank you so much um, for your share. I really appreciate your honesty. My question to you is, um, can you tell me a little bit about um, your connection with your higher power and what you do on a daily basis? Absolutely. So basically, in terms of connecting with my higher power, I do a list of gratitudes every day. 
And I know that gratitude begets more gratitude. So I write down, even if it's like I can walk or I, I try to put things in the positive as opposed to being like, this didn't happen. I try to focus on, okay, well, what did happen? And I also include different items of gratitude that I don't have yet, but I talk about them and claim them and write them as though I already had them and I'm already grateful for them. And I gotta say, going back to that higher power of just this kind of higher self and seeing higher power in retrospect, I look back on several years worth of these lists and every single thing pretty much that I wrote down that I didn't have at that time, I manifested in either the way I conceived of it, but in many other cases, actually in the way that was much grander and more in service of what I really needed that would take me to the utmost level, um, thanks to higher power. So that's how I connect through that ritual. I have taken all these qualities that were liabilities and I've turned them into assets. So the rituals have become self-sustaining instead of self-harming. Thank you. Thanks so much, Cindy. And that's unfortunately all the time we have for questions. Uh, I'll turn it back.